Since its inception in 1979, the Flight Simulator series, originally created by Sublogic, has been at the cutting edge of technology. One reviewer called the initial entry to the series the single most impressive computer game I have ever seen. It creates a whole new standard. And a whole new standard it did create. So it was no surprise that Microsoft wanted to acquire it to show off all the fancy new additions to 16-bit computing. Since that first version of Microsoft Flight Simulator in November of 1982, the Flight Simulator series has become one of the longest-running video game franchises, spanning an era of 37 years and 9 months, with its latest version being released in the middle of last year. Today, we're going to talk about all the technology in that latest version and look back at the beginning of the series and the various ways in which the Flight Sim series has always been on the cutting edge of technology. We'll talk about our own experiences with Microsoft Flight Simulator and look at the history of the franchise as a whole on today's mile-high trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 62nd episode of our video game nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we take a look at one title relevant to the current week in gaming history, and we talk about it. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world and its legacy, and I suddenly realized that I sound like a NPR, um, an NPR radio show. I hear it now, Rob. And today, today, we're going back to the early days of the simulator genre and taking a look at the, the entirety of the Microsoft Flight Simulator series, which originally came to IBM PCs in November of 1982, though maybe a little bit earlier. We'll talk about that. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who has earned his full-fledged simulator pilot's license, my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, how many virtual hours does it take to ha- earn your, your simulator pilot's license these days? Uh, you know, you, you got to have about 100 hours of flight time. Just 100? Don't I mean, they need don't they need like thousands to actually get a pilot license? I feel like the simulators are getting it easy. Um I I don't think it's quite as many as you think to become a private pilot you actually only need to spend like 40 hours in the air. What? Yeah. Most it's actually cuz this is actually something that I've looked into uh in the recent past uh looking into obtaining a private pilot's license. And yeah, it's, I mean, most people you want to say probably closer to 80 hours, but you legitimately only need 40 hours of time in the air. Um, And it's actually not too far after that you do your solo flight. So it's actually kind of terrifying how quickly you get into it. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. So I'm going to move on from that. How do you... um... (laughs) What uh, uh, you? I ask you how good you are if you're good every week, and the answer is always the same. So, uh, I'm good. You're good. Let's move on. What are you playing? Yeah. Uh, well, this week has been quite a lot of Car Mechanic Simulator. Nice. Yeah, and then I got a little bit of Rocket League and some RuneScape in there. Didn't get any Diablo in though, because someone hasn't been around. No, I. I did not have any time to play video games at all in the past week, with the exception of about 30 or 40 minutes on Sunday. And I spent it playing Age of Empires 4 because I'm a huge fan of that series. I was super excited that a new one came out and I I was I made that 30 minutes on Sunday. I didn't have it. I made it because I felt guilty for being a huge fan of the series and not having time to play it when it first came out. So there. Yeah. But that's all the video gaming I've got in, in, in the last week at all. That that's it. That little 30 minutes. It it do be like that sometimes, you know? Yeah, sometimes it sure do. 
yeah, if you are a fan of Age of Empires or strategy games in general, you will not be disappointed by Age of Empires. I started um, the game starts you right out in a tutorial campaign and I felt right at home, you know, was completing objectives ahead of the game telling me to do so, because when you've played that stuff enough, you kind of already know that, you know, hey, you need to send these guys to go cut wood type deal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but then I got into the campaign and the first campaign is about the um, the Normans taking over England in 1066. And it's really cool because they actually like we talk about this a lot. You know, I always I always talk about how whether or not a video game is an educational tool. And I feel like in this one, they really embraced it because they tell the story of what happened and they start out the story in this one by showing the actual artifact called the Bayou Bayou Tapestry, which is the reason why we know how, what happened in that specific battle. Um, and then like, as part of the story, they shot video of the battle, like towns and sites in, in modern, but they like CGI, like superimpose the armies walking through. Um, so like you're watching real time video of it now, but they're like, you know, but like you see the army, like a ghost army walking through the town, which is kind of cool to see that perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, they're doing a really good job. Uh, the, it's it's really good. I, I, I mean, I haven't had a whole lot of time to play. That was enough time to get me two missions, three missions. Um, I may have had an hour. I don't know. But um, so far, so good. I would like to just do a deathmatch at some time. You should join me. Um, it's a fun series and you'll be okay. So. Heck yeah. I mean, you've never played Age of Empires, right? Negative. Yeah, so you have no clue. It's, a, it's an excellent strategy series. Really, it is. I think, um, yeah, it's just an excellent strategy series. And I would I would like to play... I would like to play just, you know, get into this one non non uh, campaign. But the campaign's good so far. So anyways, we're not here to talk about Age of Empires, although it's always nice to touch base about new stuff. We are here today to talk about the flight Microsoft Flight Simulator. Now, in the middle of last year, August to be exact, Microsoft released the latest version of Microsoft Flight Simulator. It's uh, it's just titled Microsoft Flight Simulator though people who are familiar with the series call it Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020 to distinguish it from other titles in the series. Uh, Rob, you you and I both downloaded it the week it came out, right? That is correct. And you played, we've, we've played a bunch of it. Uh, yeah, no, I, I have some amount of time into this one, yeah. So let me ask you this. Do you remember what the first thing you did when you loaded up the game was like, what was your first thing you wanted to do? I mean, the first thing I did was go through some of the, uh, the in-game tutorials. It's true. Trying to familiarize myself with the controls. Cause I believe at the time I was using a single joystick. So it was difficult for me to get all of the controls and memorize them because I obviously had a lot more or less. I had more limits on what I could do because I had so few, buttons or knobs or some things so i did the tutorials to learn what about you uh i mean tutorial if i remember correctly didn't the, this one put you in a cessna yeah i mean that basically is the first thing you always fly in these yeah, yeah well that's true enough but yeah um okay so then i vaguely remember you flying from there to here at one point though right Oh, yeah. No, there was a day before um, one of our recordings where I literally took a Boeing 747, I want to say it was at the time. I, I forget the exact model plane I had chosen, but I flew one out of DTW and flew it all the way down to uh, to you. Nice. I can't remember the air code, but you know MS, it better. MSY. MSC. Yeah, that's it. MSY. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I did that that whole flight in flight sim. And uh, about the time I was landing is about the time you hopped into chat. And, and it was kind of kind of coincidental. So what else, what, um, what do you think about this version of Flight Simulator? Do you have a lot of experience with other ones in the series? 
I definitely did not have a lot of time in the older ones. Uh, a lot of the immersion for me with flight sims has always been the joystick, like the actual immersion with the flight controllers. I It's not that it's not fun with controller or keyboard mouse for me, but it's definitely not as immersive. Um, so I didn't have as much experience with those solely because I have that full immersion now. So I feel more compelled to want to play because it's more just involved and more like the real thing. So I don't have as much experience with the old ones, but I really do enjoy this new one. Um, I personally haven't found any like game breaking glitches or anything. I mean, I'm sure that they're out there and people have found them all day and night, but I think it's been phenomenal. I enjoy it a lot. Obviously I put a lot of time into it. Uh, I think it's a great game, although it does suck, you know, the way that they do add ons and have to pay so much to get newer planes and stuff, but I get it. You know, I mean, that's all of games nowadays. So, yeah. So there were there there were some glitches. Let me ask you this: Have you had a chance to play it with anybody else at this point? I have only ever done solo. I haven't done the uh, online experience yet. No, so you haven't stumbled across anyone else flying either. Not that you're aware of. Um, no, I can't say that I'm aware of. No. So there were bugs in this version of Microsoft Flight Simulator, and and I, I guess I'll talk about that in one second. But I want to talk about the game itself. So Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020 was the first release in the Flight Simulator series in 14 years. And I mean, you have nothing really but good things to say. I didn't really hear any bad things in there. And that's kind of been the consensus across the board. On Metacritic right now, its aggregated review score is a 90 out of 100 across all the platforms. So pretty much everybody uh, kind of feels the same way. And why I want to bring that up is because flight simulators have always been a, a piece of software that drives technology. And that's no different with the new one. It's no different with the new one. So... Let's talk first about where you can fly. Did Rob, when you were flying, was there anything that surprised you? Something that you were like, holy crap, that's in there? Or like, I've never seen that before? Or just something along the lines of that that was that was kind of awesome, you know, in, in the new one? I mean, I didn't really ha know like what kind of limitations I could really experience in the game. So I, I didn't really have any of those like, whoa, that's crazy. Like, I, I think it's awesome, everything that you can do in there. But there were none that I was like, oh, wow, they can do that. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, obviously, you can do weather and do like real time weather because you just sync it up to like real time data. And same with like people, other flights at the same time as you, because like you can set it to real world traffic and everything is done so well with the FAA and all of that, that like they know where every single, well, I shouldn't say every single, cause who knows, or it could always be something glitchy, but I mean, 99% of planes are known where they are at all times in our skies. So all they have to do is just have access to that data, which I'm pretty sure you can find on any, like on a website right now on Google. So just, aggregating that data into the game like it makes sense and it's cool but it's not like wow they can do that I, I i guess because i had seen a lot of that in college with projects i knew what could be done with these kind of yeah programs and clouds so i got firsthand experience but it is awesome like don't get me wrong i'm not putting any less that it's it's any less awesome it is still freaking phenomenal i was just kind of knowing about it all before seeing in the game. So it was just really cool to say like, Hey, that's in the game. That's awesome. But it wasn't like, Whoa, I never would have thought of that. Yeah. What about you though? I mean, I think everything's, it's great. It's awesome. Um, so this game uses cloud computing, like you just said, and artificial intelligence um that's that uses the cloud to generate itself and basically what it does is it takes data from bing maps you know microsoft's i always want to say google maps you know bing maps microsoft's maps and it dumps it into its cloud 
which is called uh, Azure. 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 What's I the color? Azure. 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 Whatever the color. Azure would be the color. Um, and basically, in the cloud, an artificial intelligence takes all that map data and it generates true 3D representations of the Earth, meaning that you can visit most everywhere. This AI generates off the off the maps it generates 3d models of buildings 3d models of trees it generates the terrain correctly you know there's some places that are more specific and handcrafted like a lot of the airports throughout the world uh they they handcrafted but in general this ai um this ai just takes everything and turns it into photorealistic and it does it it just does it so you can literally go just about everywhere you know um, so one of the most popular features is for pilots to visit their home. Not too long after this was released, uh, a third party company did a survey of players of this game. And in the survey, 70% of players that they survey flew to their homes or to their hometown. So Rob, you were, you're, you're in there with the 70%. I, I, I am too. Although I still haven't had an opportunity to come and see my house. I want to crash into it. I think that'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so cool. Uh, um, but you mentioned a few other things. So the AI pulls real-time air traffic in and adds it to the game. And it pulls real-time weather data in and allows you to experience weather as it happens. And so I remember my first really cool experience when I had time to sit down with it. When Hurricane Laura was coming here to Louisiana and Texas ended up hitting... Uh, Lake Charles, more on the the Texas Louisiana border, players were able to fly inside of a Cat Four hurricane. Um, now it wasn't perfect; it the it didn't have rotation, and the the aerodynamics were a little weird. But it was a really cool and unique experience for players to have. And um, the end result was that the developers were able to tweak some things about the weather when they realized, like they basically learned from their mistakes and what it could do and what it couldn't do. So that helped too. Um, and then again, in December, they added the ability to experience the game in virtual reality. So I picked it back up in December with, or whenever I forgot my VR headset, which was after December. But when I got my VR headset, this is one of the games I can remember playing. So I got to go back in there and sit in the middle of my Cessna. I went back to the tutorial because now I need to learn how to do it in VR, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I got to go back into the Cessna. I got to play it in actual virtual reality, which was, uh, I don't do heights, so it's hard for me, even in VR, because you get that same, uh, vertigo, that feeling of vertical, you know? Right. But it's still super cool to be sitting in an airplane and looking out the window. And, um, I mean, like literally sitting in the airplane, you know, like, uh, it's so hard to explain virtual reality because it sounds so gimmicky if you don't get to experience it, but it really is something different nowadays. Um, it's not, it, it's freaking literally like sitting in there. It's so cool. It just, it's so cool. It's the only way to put it. So, um, right you are, dude. but yeah, so VR was really cool. And all in all, there is an absolute ton of technology that's poured into the game. I, you know, I would argue that it's probably one of the most technologically impressive video games that's out right now. I mean, can you think of any other games that are really pushing technological, doing something unique with technology like this one is, Rob? I mean, you know a lot more about new games and things than I do. So if you don't, I'm definitely not going to. <laughs> that's a good answer. Thank you. Uh, but no, for real, you know, I, I think... One of the most impressive things about this is is its use of cloud computing, which is definitely something you're starting to see Microsoft do a lot more of. I remember one of the first games I can recall them talking about doing that was when they showed off the original Crackdown, or it may have been Crackdown 2. Um, but, you know, they talked about with, with Crackdown, you, you know, it had uh, full destruction, and they talked about doing all the... Uh, all the computations for the destruction in the cloud and then zipping it back to you uh, which is a way of offsetting the the hardware limitations of your own you know the xbox at the time and that's a really novel concept you know you're starting to see cloud computing pop up 
So, like, one of the things Microsoft recently talked about is they have their xCloud project. Rob, do you know what X? Excuse me. Do you know what the xCloud project is? That's not one I'm familiar with. No. Well, do you know their cloud? Maybe their cloud computing, the cloud gaming project, where you can stream the games. Do you know that one? It's part uh, of it's yeah. part of Game Pass now. So, I I didn't know about that either. All right. So the basis of the the basis of the xCloud that's part of game pass now is that you can stream games to your devices. So instead of being on your, you know, Xbox and playing the game, you can go into XCloud. say if you're traveling and on your laptop, plug your controller into your laptop. And then the game is played on a computer in Microsoft's cloud computing center. And it just streams the, the video data back to your laptop. So you can play it through the cloud. And why this is unique and special and what's going on with it is they've basically come out with Game Pass and they've said, well, look, we realize that not everyone is going to be able to invest in our next gen hardware right now, meaning, you know, the Xbox Series X, the current, the newest generation. But we're going to make some of our games as we start to make games exclusive to the next gen. We're also going to make them part of the cloud, you know, X cloud project. And so theoretically, if you don't upgrade right away to the latest generation of gaming systems, you'll be still be able to play the games, just play them by streaming them through the cloud service to your um, to to your to your old Xbox. Theoretically, they, they plan on doing it to the old Xbox. And so it's a great way for a lot of people to be able to experience um to be able to experience next gen, you know, video games without necessarily having to adopt next generation video game hardware. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's pretty cool. It actually is very, very cool. It's very cool. And you see video games like the flight sim series have always been, have kind of always been the games that have, at least in my opinion, really pushed the cutting edge of technology. So, um, yeah. So let's go back to the beginning. We talked about the now, Let's talk about the then. Okay. So back in 1973, Bruce Artwick went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I probably just butchered that name uh, to study computer engineering. Almost immediately, though, when he got there, he switched to electrical engineering because at the time in the 70s, computer engineering was people thought it was a a job that was going to go nowhere. Um, and so he switched to electrical engineering to make it more acceptable to the public eye and, um, and improve his job prospects. So during this time, um, Artwork worked with computers. He held down a technician position in the DCL, their digital computer lab, where he worked as part of a graphics group that designed the graphics for the terminals in the lab. And while in college, he also found the time to become a pilot. Little, little fun fact. Um, he graduated with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering in 1975 and began to work towards his master's degree in the same subject in 1976. Now, in his graduate thesis, uh, which he published in May of 1976, he wrote what he called uh, he wrote about what he called as a versatile computer generated dynamic flight display in which he displayed a model of a flight of an aircraft on a computer screen. And by doing so, he proved that it was possible to use a Motorola 6800 microprocessor, which was the first available microcomputer um, to handle the graphics and calculations needed to produce real-time flight simulation. And with that, it was off. A year later, in 1977, Bruce Artwick founded Sublogic. By day... Uh, at this point, he had managed to score a job with his electrical engineering degree at Hughes Aircraft as an engineer. But by night, he was, you know, sitting there eating, you know, microwave dinners while programming and documenting his new, newly developed 3D graphics programs. The first of which was called Three Dimensional Microcomputer Graphics in the M6800 Assembly Language, which he released in July of 1977. And so this dude is like at daytime working as a engineer for an aircraft company. And by night he's selling what's basically a 3d graphic library out of a PO box in Culver city. Wow. Yeah. And it started to pick up. Um, 
it, you know, as he sold more and more, he realized that this was going to be something. And so he called his college friend, uh, Stu Moment, to come run Sublogic's business operations. And so Stu was going to school at the time. He was in his graduate, working on his graduate degree at the uh, uh, College of Commerce. He was working on something marketing. And he was also a full-time flight and ground school instructor. Um, and he thought it'd be fun to help. You know, he, he saw this as because he was working on his business and marketing stuff, you know, he saw this as a way to kind of take what he was learning in school and apply it to real life. So he agreed to, he agreed to come help run the business side of Sublogic. And so he incorporated the company and yeah, he incorporated the company. And so Sublogic became an actual company. Sublogic actually became two companies. Fun little thing. So Stu went on a cross country trip to California, which is where, um, uh, which is where Bruce was at the time, or might might have been vice versa. Um, and they incorporated the company as a company in California, but then went back to the Midwest to Illinois and founded a company called Sublogic Distribution, which was founded to be the company that distributes for sublogic so they actually founded two companies probably because at the time they were going to be cross-country and they wanted to make it above water you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so yeah well i mean it's a it's a man there's they wrote a little i I got online i was reading their little anecdotes and they were talking about you know they 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 bought motorcycles you know they rode cross-country on a little you know like yamaha uh you know little 50 cc bike that they paid 49 dollars a month and as a as a, a bike payment for type deal you know the kind of bike that you shouldn't have been taking cross country um but they did you know well props to them i know and so this brings us to fs1 flight simulator which was written for the apple II in 1979 so FS1 was the their first flight simulator program. It was a flight simulator that simulated the cockpit of a slightly modernized Sopwith Camel. Rob, do you know what what uh, plane the Sopwith Camel is? Cannot say that I do. It's the Snoopy plane. Do you know the Do you know Snoopy? Oh, the Red Baron. The Red Baron. Yes, 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 yes. So the Apple II flight simulator FS1, A2 FS1 had black and white wireframe graphics. It featured very limited scenery, consisting of 36 tiles in a 6x6 pattern, which equated to a few hundred square kilometers, and provided a very basic simulation of only one aircraft, the Sopwith Camel. Sublogic advertised it at $25 and advertised it as a visual flight simulator that gives you realistically stable aircraft control, with a graphics engine capable of drawing 150 lines per second. And so they really they released it, right? I know. Mm-hmm. 150 lines per second. Crazy. One reviewer said that Flight Simulator is the single most impressive computer game he had ever seen. And that it created a new standard that he strongly urged people to buy and see for themselves. So it was a hit. About three months later, they ported it over to the TRS-80. I don't think we've ever really talked about the TRS-80. Nope. Not so the, familiar with it at all. So the Tandy TRS-80 was uh, sold in Radio Shack stores. Tandy owned Radio Shack. And it was pretty much one of the earliest mass-produced and mass-marketed retail home computers. So it was up there with the Apple IIs and Commodores and all that of the world. So Now, a lot of people were really excited about these flight simulators. And 16-bit computing was quickly becoming a thing. You know, the the Apple II was an 8-bit. This was an 8-bit computer. So up until now, we were doing 8-bit computing. And so IBM approached Bruce Artwick, looking for what they called a nifty program to show off the color graphic potential of new IBM PCs. And so the two came together and could not strike a deal that would make everyone happy. So they parted. Shortly thereafter, in late 1981, Microsoft approached Microsoft approached, approached Artwick to create a flight simulator for them, and the two sides were able to come to an agreement. 
So initially, Microsoft asked Bruce to convert. They wanted a strict conversion of the Tandy flight simulator into a 16-bit format. But Bruce had seen 16-bit computers. He knew um, he knew what they could what they could do, and he was excited for all the potential, all the stuff because he knew he could do so much more with 16-bit computers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so they did. They they gave him a team uh, of I think three more people, and they allowed him to work on it. And so this would become Microsoft Flight Simulator 1.0. They added 20 real airports. There was a World War I dogfight simulation. There was full instrumentation. There was night flying. There was an easy mode, like arcade, you know, physics. And there was a realistic mode. And best of all, best of all, they say, was the actual sensation of flying a real airplane. Now, as part of the process, Artwick developed a coordinate system that included most of the U.S., part of Canada, and the Caribbean itself. You could actually fly all the way from Chicago to Seattle in this one. The problem was is that there really wasn't any scenery in between. Uh, you had to refuel somewhere in the middle there. And realistically, those 20 airports were all split between four major metropolitan areas, New York, Chicago, Seattle, and Los Angeles. So, yes, you could fly across country, but there really wasn't much to see or look at, you know? Right. And so they worked really long hours on the 3D animated graphics, and they were able to achieve a very impressive 5 to 16 frames per second. Mm, respectable. I know. One reviewer at the time compared that to watching a movie. <coughs> oh, my guy. <laughs> or gal. Oh, the joys you'll have in the future. Can you imagine? I mean, we got we get salty when we get below 30 frames per second. You know what I mean? Yeah. And no, here can and here people. And, and look, I remember these old flight simulators. I mean, we didn't have the now to compare it to. They were awesome. I mean, they were. This was it didn't matter that there was nothing on the ground. You were actually flying a plane from Chicago to Seattle. Like actually flying a plane. It was it was special, honestly. It was special. For fun, Artwick also added uh some personal touches. Uh he included Hughes Airport in Culver City because that's where all his friends worked. And he also included the University of Willard, Willard Airport, which is where he got his flight time in. Um so yeah, so there were some personal touches too. Um, advertisements for the game told potential buyers, uh, and I quote, if flying your IBM PC got any more realistic, you need a license. Oh. <laughs> the starting airport, uh, which is a familiar site to many early flight sim fans, was Meg's Field in Chicago, with a view of Chicago skyline to the left and a view of Lake Michigan to the right. Now, this would remain the default starting spot for all future Flight Sim titles until Flight Sim 2004, because Meg's Field was abruptly closed in 2003. Um, yeah, 2003. Rob, so did you play any of the early uh, Flight Sims enough to know what Meg's, Meg's Field is? Well, the first time I would have played this would have been 2008. So no, no, I was too late. Little thing for years, the city um, makes field was just off the like, um, you know, the museum district in Chicago where like the, you know, the aquarium, the museum and all that yeah. is. So Meg's field wasn't too far from that further into Lake Michigan. It's a park now, which is why you probably you wouldn't have recognized it for what it is. Um, and it, it, in Chicago's heyday, it was where a lot of business, you know, business jets and stuff would come in because it was right close to downtown. As it got older, it became a place that a lot of medicine stuff came in and out of, but there was always a fight because of where it is and what it is between the city and the field and all sorts of crap. Uh, to make a long story short, after a very bitter battle, um, one one no joke one night the city of chicago's mayor uh daily mayor daily at the time in 2000 
three uh ordered city workers to destroy it overnight they literally took bulldozers and they bulldozed x's through the runway because it was a single runway uh, uh airport they bulldozed x's through the runway so the air the runway couldn't be used ever again and basically it was like look People were going to hold on to this to the bitter end. I just did this a favor because we all know it was going eventually. Um, yeah. Wow. And eventually it became a big deal because it was an F like the FAA ended up finding the city because they did. They're supposed to give like 30 days notice before uh, a major airport like this gets closed and they didn't get notice or anything. Dude literally just had them carve X's into the field abruptly one night in, in 2003. So. Wow. One little thing. That's actually insane. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a funny story. So it was well received. You know, one reviewer said that it turned your IBM PC into a Cessna and made a throw of flying a reality. You know, a computer magazine called Microsoft Flight Simulator a tour de force of programming art. You know, so people at the time were recognizing how special it was, too. And the series really <laughs> didn't, didn't stop. You know, it, it kept going. In 1983, Artwick uh, came out with Flight Simulator 2. This was also a sublogic title, FS2. And basically what he did is he took all the improvements he made, because he made improvements when he ported to Tandy. And then, of course, um, there were improvements that came with Microsoft Flight Simulator 1.0, you know. And he took all those improvements that he ported over to other computers and he brought them back into Flight Simulator 3 and did as much of them as he could, releasing that for the Apple II and then the Commodore 64 and then the Atari 8-bit and then rolling it to other PCs throughout, you know, the next few years. So, um, like, like the transition from the first one to the second one, this one also went to real color and added some real, war- real world scenery, you know? The mm-hmm. next, the next year in '84, they came uh, Flight Simulator 2.0. Um, this version made some small improvements. Uh, the graphics were improved upon. Uh, the simulation was made a little bit more precise, and you got joystick and mouse input for the first time in 1984. Ooh. Um, you also got support for RGB monitors. Uh, which is four color monitors. That was a, uh, an upgrade at the time. Um, yeah. And they added a lot more scenery. So they were able to slowly start to fill in the United States and create and fill in those gaps, um, fill in the gaps, you know, between the places. Now, uh, a- a- as Microsoft was doing this, Sublogic was becoming involved kind of less and less. Bruce Artwick would eventually go on to found what's called the BAO Bruce Artwick organization and the BAO and sub and sublogic. It would be sublogic and then BAO. Um, they would start to make scenery packs and they were just disc disc packs where you could, you could buy them separately. They were basically expansion discs for the game. And, hmm. you know, as I'm thinking back on it, I don't really remember many examples of, of expansion for the, like, like it's so common now downloadable content is so common but at the time i can't remember other games that made regularly available expansion content that you could buy like this i'm sure there's others and someone on social media is about to go no you asshole there was this game um but in the you know late 80s into early 90s um yeah i i it was something unique at the time so and then we just keep going, you know? So finally we had mouse and joystick control. You know, the the as the computers improved, they were able to make better simulations. So the simulations were improving. You know, we got Microsoft Flight Simulator 3.0 in 1988. This was an MS, this was the first MS DOS one. Ooh. Um, it got it added more aircrafts, it added more airports. Um, you know, we got Lair Jets now, uh, we got Assassin's Skylane, you know, we, you could customize your display now, there were multiple windows, um, you could have different views at one time, 
So like you could you could view it from inside your cockpit like you were normally flying. But if you also wanted to put a window with a view of your your airplane from outside the airplane, you could or maybe a specific instrument panel, you could. So now we got separate windows and that was something that really wasn't seen at the time. This is this is MS-DOS. Realistically, this is before Windows Windows, so we weren't used to that concept, you know. Mm-hmm. Um we weren't used to that concept. Again, it's so weird talking about all this because we take so much of it for granted, but we didn't have it at the time, you know what I mean? Right, no, absolutely. And that brings us to Microsoft Flight Simulator 4.0, which came out in 1989, which it brought a lot of improvements. You know, there were new aircraft models that were better. There were random weather patterns. Uh, We had a sailplane for the first time Uh, and dynamic scenery. Um, Yeah, you know, and this is when, you know, I just briefly talked about the BAO, the the Bruce Arwick organization. Um, FS4 is when they really came into their own. You know, they started to create custom scenery units or SC1 files that could be used within FS4, Flight Simulator 4.0. Um, and and so they, they allowed for a lot of custom stuff. Um, you know, as part of that, they also released a sound graphics and aircraft upgrade, which added digital and synthesizer sound. Um, and high-resolution models that higher-end video cards could take care of, um, to, to higher could take care of, take advantage of. This was one that was cool because the BAL released all this fun stuff. They released that sound graphics upgrade. Um, they released a, um, a module called the Aircraft and Scenery Designer that made it easy to, you know, bring this stuff in. Uh, they released something called the Aircraft Adventure Factory which allowed custom design aircraft shapes to be used. Um, So you could basically use like a CAD type interface and design your own um, stuff. Uh, And then you had the part of the adventure mode was that you could compile a script that could access things such as position, airspeed, altitude. Basically you could create your own scenarios with it. You know, it was kind of the point of it. So you got a lot of really cool things with FS4 that was really bringing it into more of the modern era where, you know, gamers really like to take games and, um, and do something with them, you know? Right. Or mod them. That's, that's a early precursor to modding. Um, and then in 1993, we got FS5, Flight Simulator 5.0. It was the first version of the series to use textures. Um, and this allowed a much higher degree of realism. Once we got textures, (laughs) sorry. Um, but it made all all this work in FS4 obsolete because all that all the add-on scenery and and aircraft looked really out of place um, because those models were not textured. You know, the scenery got more expansive. They were able to include Europe. Um, the they were able to make the weather system more realistic. Uh, the coordinated the coordinate system that was designed way back in FS1 was revamped for this uh and got it much more realistic um so yeah they had digital audio finally custom cockpits finally and just overall better graphics i mean textures were going to lead to better graphics you know Mm -hmm. uh and then we got the last dos based flight simulator 5.1 i don't know why they squeezed a 5.1 in there um they were able to they introduced the ability to handle scenery libraries that took advantage of satellite imagery they had fast it had improved performance it had more weather effects they were able to add storms 3d cloud 3d clouds and fogs so the weather started to look much basically we got to looking more and more realistic with every iteration of this software you know what i mean yeah yeah and so that would have been the last one for DOS. And then we got Flight Simulator for Windows 95. Ah, Windows 95. Yes. Which was basically Flight Simulator 5.1. They just improved it. It had a better frame rate. It had better haze. It had more aircraft. Um, but instead of using uh, you know, Flight Simulator 6 as its title... 
they wanted to use Windows 95 because that was their thing. Everything had to be for Windows 95 because Windows 95 was a huge freaking deal when it came out. Huge freaking deal. Oh, that crap was so revolutionary. Um, yeah, so it's pretty awesome. They also were able to add uh, major airports outside of Europe and the U.S. for the first time. So again, more of the world's coming together. Yeah. Yeah. Then we got Flight Sim 98. Yay. Flight Sim 98 was uh, really just a, a minor upgrade to 95. Um, it was the first one, though, to include a helicopter. Do you ever fly helicopters in the game? I can't say that I have, no. The Cessna. This would have been the first one that the Cessna 182 had a photorealistic instrument panel, finally. Um, it, it, it just it had a, a lot of cool things. Um, 45 detailed cities were included, most of which were located outside of the United States, which was a big upgrade to the scenery. This one also had support for the Microsoft Sidewinder Pro Force Feedback Joystick. Do you remember the Force Feedback uh, Sidewinders? Did you ever get to play with them? It doesn't sound familiar, no. Oh, man. It was the coolest thing, because that was one of the earliest like tactile feedback things, and I remember playing with the Force Feedback. Do you ever have a Force Feedback steering wheel at all? Uh, I have one now. Oh, cool. So, you, so you, you're familiar. Yeah. Um, yeah, so basically... With the, the the force feedback pro, you would you would receive you know you'd be able to feel the trim forces on the aircraft controls, and that was again awesome. Something brand new. There really weren't games that allowed you to get feedback. You know the force feedback really worked with these and with racing games or most of them. Um, and here in '98, that was really the first time that uh, that Windows DirectX was introduced to the series. And so, like, you now had 3D graphics cards that, you know, great performance, you know, better better weather effects. The virtual cockpit views were pretty awesome. You know, your filtering was awesome. It just, it, it looked better. You could finally, finally take advantage of, of good 3D graphics, you know what I mean? Right. What'd you say was the first one you ever got to play? It was around 2008 that I got to play, so that would likely be... 2004. Yeah, the 2004. Well, it could have been X. Okay. Actually, I think it was X. I think it was FX, FSX. Well, we had a few in between. We had Flight Sim 2000, um, which Flight Sim 2000 was... Um, we got 3D Elevation... We got GPS added to the game, which was better. You know, dynamic scenery was improved. Flight Simulator 2000 was a little controversial because it had a normal version and a pro version. Um, and then it didn't really meet a lot of people's expectations because people got excited because the minimum requirements were a Pentium 166 and uh, like a 500 megahertz computer was deemed necessary to have a remotely smooth frame rate. That was a problem we had with a lot of games back then. You know, the confusion between minimum requirements and um, and and recommended requirements. I think nowadays game developers do a really good job of building their games to work with minimum requirements. But back then, the recommended was the ideal. Like, it was what they worked on. And if it worked with minimum requirements, good. Didn't really matter how good it worked, if that makes sense. I just think they do a lot better of a job with that nowadays. Yeah, probably. So one of the most important things about Flight Simulator 2000 was that they it added over 17,000 new airports to the simulation <laughs> itself. And so now, now worldwide, they had over 20,000 uh, worldwide airports. And so basically, you know, it, it, it allowed people to simulate long international flights better you know, instrument instrument based flying that relayed on video navigation aids from all the towers got better because now you had all the you could fill in all the blanks. Yeah, I mean, basically with that one, you know, Microsoft claimed that they were able to include every documented airport and again navigational aid in the world, which is kind of a cool bragging right, you know. So we got a lot of stuff for that, which brought us to Flight Simulator 2. 
2002, which we got air traffic control. And it's hard to try to remember nowadays that of a, cause that's still what, tw- that's 20 years now from 2002. Uh, it's hard to imagine a, a Microsoft flight that doesn't have air traffic control. Cause I don't think you've ever got to experience one. Right. Right. So that's kind of cool. Um, and it also had a artificial intelligence, which allowed them to add computer controlled aircraft in and communicate with the airports. So let's go back to the new one, right? The new one, we were talking about how they, they use real world airport traffic to plug those airplanes into the real world. And prior to flight simulator 2002, there were no other airplanes in this, in any of the simulators. And so with the addition here with this AI, now they actually had computer controlled aircraft coming in and out of the airports and communicating with the radio tower, which added another level of realism, you know, that people could add another level of realism. That's the only way to put it, right? Right. Yeah, no, it's pretty cool. I mean, I guess it's just having grown up only having played it like that. It's weird to think of not having. Yeah. And then Flight Simulator 2004 was called A Century of Flight. I remember this one. It had a really cool right flyer on the on the um on the cover. You could fly the right flyer or a Ford Trimotor or a Douglas DC3, some of the early, you know, planes to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Wright Brothers flight. So that was super freaking cool. Yeah. So that was super cool. And like we had talked about because Meg's Airport was closed in 2003, this was the last feature to feature Last one to feature it as their their default airport. And that takes us to 2006 with FSX, Flight Simulator X, which is probably the one that you're used to, huh? That's the one I started with, but I didn't play a whole lot of it because I was young and we didn't have joysticks. Well, actually, we didn't even own this game. It was uh, Damon's that I got to experience this for the first time. Well, this had new aircraft. It had better multiplayer for the first time, two players could fly in a single plane, um, and players could also occupy a control tower to become air control. Uh, and so I remember with this one because you know this is about the time when like YouTube was starting to uh, become more popular. A bunch of really goofy and stupid videos of people, uh, you know, people goofing around being aircraft control and the airplane. You ever see any of those? Any? Can, do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, I've watched some videos of a YouTuber who does air traffic control videos. But um, he, he does them for real, doesn't he? What, what do you mean for real? Like, does he try to actually be uh, air traffic control? Oh, is he, yeah, is it, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, I'm talking about someone who's doing it uh, comedically. I mean, I'm sure that in some of the videos I've seen people doing that. Because he'll also be like the flying and talking to air traffic controller, expecting them to be serious, and they're goofing off, trying to be funny. So, yeah, I'm sure I've seen it once or twice. So yeah, so you could be aircraft control, you could do things. Um, it just was really cool, and that was that would have been the last Microsoft Flight Simulator released until we got this new one this new one last year, 14 year gap from 2006 to now. And each time, each time the, 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 the simulators pushed the boundaries of, yeah. So when force feedback became a thing, they were on it. And as the computing power got greater and the Ram got greater and the graphics got great, became greater. The flight simulators were all there to jump on it and take advantage of, to take advantage of the new technology I, I just think that this is this series has always been one for 37 years and nine months. You know, this is this is slightly older than I am. I, I it's just always been a series that's always taken complete advantage of cutting edge technologies and done a really great job with it. Yeah, that's Flight Sim. That's the Flight Simulator series in a nutshell, Rob. I feel like I've been gabbing about it and I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to keep, I probably just caused a million car accidents and put everyone to sleep. Uh, Rob, so I, I do have a quick question for you though. Um, what's your favorite thing to do in the flight simulator? Um, I mean, fly. <laughs> I, yeah. That's, that, that's really it. Just, you know, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I, obviously i've just taken off from dcw a lot because i know that very well 
uh and it's fun to like hey you know what if i had a plane someday i could fly from here to there but like at the root of it it's just get up in a plane and fly i don't always but finish you... the flights i i literally just i mean okay i guess just taking off and then flying for some time sometimes getting to land is cool but i don't always get there are you the kind of person that just likes to do real flights? Are you the kind of person that like likes to like, you know, people are like, hey, I want to buzz the Golden Gate Bridge or, um, you know, anything like that. I do more just real flight. More like real flight? Yeah, just flying. Not anything fancy like that. Now, are you like trying to stick with the rules? So like you're all about the, you know, um, uh, active traffic control and taxiing for real at being a proper little pilot is that your thing i didn't do a whole lot of that before but i have been more so recently again with the whole wanting to actually look into becoming a pilot i say now i probably do for follow the rules a little more because it's probably a good habit to have if i ever do get the opportunity very very true what about yourself I am the kind of person that likes to buzz real life places. I, I want to use it to see, I you know, I, I haven't gotten to travel a lot in my lifetime, unfortunately. I haven't gotten to travel a lot in my lifetime. And I, I very much like to use it to go places that I, I, I don't know, sadly may never, may never see. And I like to buzz... Uh, famous landmarks and check out places and see places that i recognize i think that's some of the fun stuff uh and i do that with every game i i for whatever reason it popped in my head what was that racing game that that did a, a abbreviated map of the whole united states do you remember they made two of they just made a second one a few years ago cruising usa no 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 it was more of an open world game like the ride or uh god what's that racing game called crew? yeah the crew that's exactly right the crew didn't they make a crew a second crew recently yeah, the crew two. well i don't know how recent it is but the crew too um and the, the the crew two is the one where they added like planes and stuff to the game too um Anyways, I remember when I got that one because that one is kind of an abbreviated version of of um, of it, and it starts out in Detroit. And of course, the first thing I want to do was ho- see how realistic uh, realistic uh, it was because it's a smaller version. I remember vaguely driving to where we grew up, and all that's there is a trailer park, and I was like, Meh, "Okay, <laughs> <laughs> nice, of course, <laughs> yeah, you know." Um, so, which of course there are trailer parks where we live. We did not grow up in one. We were lucky enough to grow up in a house, uh, in a neighboring neighborhood. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you you had to geographically where where we would be in yeah trailer park. I was like, okay. not far from Marshall Mathers. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. All right. So other than the trip from Detroit to New Orleans, is have there been any other trips you've taken that you've been particularly fond of in the new flight simulator? I mean, I I haven't done a whole lot of around the world flights as of yet. I've been mostly just doing like around DCW or uh, Col- Metro or the Coleman <clears throat> Young. Uh, so I can't say that I've done a whole lot of that, but I. Because I only recently got my uh, second throttle, and that was kind of what I was waiting on to get more into the doing like the longer session of flight simulating. So now that I have that, um, I need to get back into playing that. But I've been spending more of my time doing things with other people. So um, one of these days here, I'll be getting back into it and plan on, I don't know, maybe flying around Germany a little and getting to see some cool stuff. Just maybe do a tour across Europe. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, just spend some time. Yeah, there's some cool stuff. I, I, I don't know. It's just fun to fly places and see things, and I think this one would be more so because it it just has everything. You know what I mean? But, um, but yeah, that's that's flight simulator. Always on the cutting edge of technology. You know, Rob, that's not the only time we've ever talked about being on the cutting edge of technology. 
uh, we talk about a lot with video games, and today we kind of talked about VR. Do you remember, I think we vaguely talked about this too when we did a, 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 a episode on the history of VR. Do you remember that? Mm, yeah, I, I, I have a, a small recollection. You have a small recollection. Well, Rob, if you wanted to learn more about the history of virtual reality, you'd want to go back to our 29th episode back in March. And you could do so by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Did you know that? I did, Dave. What else can you find on www.memorycardlane.com? <laughs> oh, man. All right. So I post all my show notes. So if you want to read up some more about the Microsoft Flight Simulator series, it's history, Bruce Arwick's do moments or the history of Sublogic. Feel free to check out my notes. I will post them. You can find a calendar of upcoming events. You can learn more about us. You can find a link to join our Discord. You can find a link to uh, support us through Patreon. And there are places that you can submit your own memories or questions or stuff that you would like us to read on air. We are always open to your suggestions. Or just scream at me, which is what I tend to get anyways. So, yeah. www.memorycardlane.com you can also find our social media links. I'm on Twitter and Twitch. I don't really use Twitch, but I'm on both of them as David underscore is underscore wrong. Um, yeah, Rob, what about you? I will be found streaming on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. Awesome. 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 Well, on that note, we're going to wrap up this episode and take it out of here. And each week we do so by going back to our purpose. Each week we talk about a video game. We try to teach you something new about that video game or what it took from the world as its inspiration or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. We always talk about what we learned. Roundtable, our biggest takeaway. So, Rob, what's your takeaway for today? Well, I guess if I'm being honest, I didn't realize that Flight Sim was ever on an Apple. Really? Yeah. I remember playing it on the Apple. I do. I, I mean, it was way before my time, and even when we did, I did was older and messing with the Apple too. We didn't exactly have Flight Sim laying around for me to pop in and be like, "Oh, this works, cool." So yeah, I I just didn't know that, and that's kind of cool to know in the early early days that it was before it was microsoft it's yeah like, aha, we took yeah. it from you aha no well i mean they bought it from them well, to be yeah, fair i know i'm just yeah um yeah your first couple were um were the apple II and the tandy trs 80 i i didn't know is... that was a thing either <laughs> yeah i know i know we don't we don't talk about a lot of a lot of computers uh before then um yeah that's i guess that's the end we don't talk about a lot of computers before yeah, then nope, nope what about yourself dave what'd you enjoy or what did you, you enjoy learning about while doing this research i really enjoyed uh reading the story about early sublogic uh it was kind of fun to, to have the guys talk about in their own words um like traveling back and forth cross country and that $49 motorcycle, 50cc, became a 150cc motorcycle with a, a, a $69, nice, a $69 weekly payment, you know, and, and it was just, it was fun to, to, to see him talk about those early days and, and how everything progressed and, and um, they seem like cool dudes. And that was kind of fun. It's, I'm always most fascinated when I can get into the actual history of things you know, sometimes you can't find much more than what's on Wikipedia. And sometimes you actually get to, you know, I, 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 I often, when I do my research, I start with Wikipedia and I Google things. And, you know, I, most of the time what I try to do is if I can't get in there, I try to go into the sources for Wikipedia because Wikipedia is basically an encyclopedia entry. It's the abbreviation of everything. And so like I'll use its citations and the sources to do further research. And a lot of times I find myself down rabbit holes where I'm learning more about specific things and watching interviews and stuff like that. And I got to do that with these guys. And that's always my favorite part of doing all the research. So, yeah. So right that's on. it. That That's Microsoft flight sim, probably way more about each version than you wanted to know and why it was new and different and what they gave to the world. A um, lot about the new one, a lot about the old one. Uh, yeah. 
anyway, that's it. Rob, uh, before I take it out of here and tell everyone what we're doing next week, what do you have for me? Well, as always, I want to say thank you so much to all of our listeners. We still enjoying doing this, and we hope you're still enjoying listening. Let us know what you think. Back to you, Dave. All right. Well, I think on that note, I will take it out of here. Um, next week, uh, Rob, I, I think you're going to have a lot more fun next week. I know this one's a little dorky and more on my, my, my expertise. Uh, but next week, uh, we're going to be doing a fun game. You know, there are many games that make you feel like a superhero. But realistically, there's really only a handful of games that make you out to be a rock star. Originally released on November 8th, 2005, Guitar Hero has you playing along to your favorite rock songs on a guitar-shaped controller. It's the game that revolutionized music's relationship to the video game industry, and Guitar Hero's legacy is felt all throughout popular culture, both topics of which we're going to talk about. So come back next week and join us again as we take uh, a rock star glam-filled trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Do a ba ba boo Okay, now do a guitar riff. Wow, wow. I like that better. <laughs>